Hello everyone, my name is Adam, and welcome into this week's trip down the homeward path. Before we get into things, I've got a few questions. Are you a fan of Magic the Gathering? Presumably so, since you're here listening to a podcast about it, but, you know, what do I know? But is there something else in your life that takes precedence? Keeps you away from your magical aspirations? A job, a career, partner, spouse, children, any and all of the above. Listen, I'm right there with you. I have a wonderful wife, three children, full-time job, and a lot of extracurricular commitments that make it really difficult to devote the amount of time, finance, and energy that high-level competitive magic normally takes. But in spite of that, are you, like me, relentlessly seeking improvement every time you get a chance to play? If that sounds like something you're interested in, then I suggest you hop in and buckle up. Now let's go for a ride. But it's a good time to remind you that we are brought to you by the following sponsors. PureMTGO.com is one of the largest depositories of magic content on the web. They've got a little bit of something for absolutely everyone. And I do mean everyone. So head over there, check out their collection of stuff. While you're at it, I understand that the arena grind can feel like a bit of a slog, especially if, like me, you're traditionally at least a free-to-play player. But thanks to our sponsor at Grey Viking Games, you don't have to wander the wilderness in search of your glory on your own. You can head over there and find access to pre-release codes, single-pack codes, cosmetics, promo packs, uh, card sleeves, any and all of the above. So go and find your glory at GreyVikingGames.com. And if you want to support this show in a much more direct fashion, don't forget to head over to Patreon.com slash HomerPathMTG. This show is always going to be free, but if you like what we're doing enough to help us keep doing it, go over become a patron and take advantage of your rewards and if you've got questions comments or concerns about the show or you just want to talk you can find me on twitter i'm at homeward path mtg you can find me on facebook my name is adam spain like the country yes i got picked on about that for most of my life and you can join the conversation in the facebook group the homeward pathfinders So, head over, check all that stuff out, while you continue to listen on the Homeward Path. So, I hope everybody's had a good week. We are going to dive right in to our Budget Spotlight. Budget Spotlight's a segment each week where we cover a collection of cards that I feel are worth more in gameplay than their price tag would suggest. And the first one on the list this week, because it is Sultai week, theme of the episode is to do with the Sultai. I figured it would be a very fitting place to start to talk about their con. Tassiger, the Golden Fang. For those of you who don't know what Tassiger is, Tassiger is five and a black, buys you a four five legendary creature, doesn't really matter the creature type except that it's human, so you can't mutate onto him. Tassiger says, delve, so for every card you exile from your graveyard as you cast this spell, it reduces its cost by one, generic. And for two and then two hybrid symbols of either green or blue, you can mill your top two cards and then an opponent chooses a non-land card in your graveyard to put back in your hand. So it's usually a tag partner for Gurmag Angler, but Tassiger can help fuel all your powerful Delve cards, which in turn help make Tassiger's other ability much more powerful. Notably, 
you know, if you're using Delve cards, are you using cards that let you eat your graveyard for value? That means you can you can craft a situation where Tassiger's ability is only possibly going to return one or two one or two cards from your graveyard that are just obscenely powerful. And it can be absolutely nutty in Commander. It's obviously good in 60-card formats. It has sort of a busted-in-half pedigree in 60-card formats. But it's even nuttier in Commander where it always goes to the Command Zone and Delve pays for Commander tags. So you can just keep buying it back. You can eventually mill your library, keep using your other Delve cards to eat your graveyard, and then eventually put your opponent in a situation where they have to give you back the Thassa's Oracle in your graveyard, or they have to give you back the Laboratory Maniac, or they have to give you back the Jace uh, Wielder of Mysteries. They have to give you back your win condition for having an empty library. And I think that's really sweet. And especially considering this card, for all of that utility, is 50 cents. Come on! Are you kidding me? I know I sound a little bit like Jim Mora when I say that. Budget! I'm talking about budget. I'm just trying to win a game. But, Tassiger at 50 cents is kind of obnoxious, right? It's it's a card you you feel comfortable playing two to three of in 60-card formats where you want to play it, and it's obviously a one-of in your commander decks, but it's just really stinking good. Next on the list is a card that I feel like I, if I haven't covered on this show already, I'm doing my job wrong, and if I have covered it on the show already, we just need to talk about it again. And that card is Treasure Cruise. Treasure Cruise being seven and a blue, and it has Delve, so for every card you exile from your graveyard as you cast the spell, it reduces its cost by one generic. And three of the simplest words you can possibly imagine that have just all the power in the world. Draw three cards. Draw three cards. As little as one mana. Seriously, though. Who thought this card was okay? Especially when it when it first premiered into a standard format with fetch lands. What? How in what universe is that card okay? Apparently the correct answer to that question is a universe without fetch lands because it's been good not great in Pioneer. But being more quote-unquote balanced in Pioneer or Commander. Obviously, it's banned in Modern Legacy Pauper because it's busted in half. But even being more balanced in Commander and Pioneer, it's Ancestral Recall. It's not Ancestral Recall from turns one through, let's say, turn five, probably. Unless you're all the way in on Treasure Cruise. But. It is not a big leap from this card. To, to go from being into the story. Or not into the story. I guess it would have to be. I don't know. Compulsive research that doesn't make you discard. To an Ancestral Recall. That's really good. And oh by the way. It is. 35 cents for Ancestral Recall. <laughs> what? How? The, the, the hyperbole, the, the superlative exclamations of questions. Don't do this card justice. It's just obnoxious. And I know it's a common, obviously, or it wouldn't have had to be banned in Pauper. It just never would have been legal in the first place. But even as a common, a card with this power level and this pedigree definitely deserves to have a higher price tag, even if it's been reprinted. It's so good. Now moving on, we have the most expensive card on today's list, and that card is Wilderness Reclamation. Uh, it is three and a green enchantment. 
At the beginning of your end step, untap all lands you control. Now, cat out of the bag, this card is banned in Histor Historic and Pioneer, and it was banned from Standard before it rotated, even though it was only going to be like a month, month and a half before it rotated. But it still gets things done in Modern or Commander. I have lost games to this card in Modern. Playing Pyromancer, playing Prowess, playing Phoenix. I have lost games to Wilderness Reclamation, into Nexus of Fate, into Second Reclamation, Expansion Explosion kills you. It's not outside the realm of possibility, and don't pretend like it is. It's particularly obnoxious, though, when you start looking at formats like EDH, it's particularly obnoxious alongside utility lands. Lands like Castle Vantress, lands like Search for Azkanta, lands like uh, Arch of Orozca, lands like Maze of Ith. I guess less Maze of Ith. Lands like Castle Lothwain, lands like the Creature Lands, because it allows you to use them on your turn and then untap and get to use them again. Even something as innocuous as a Crawling Barrens, being able to sink your mana into it on your turn, untap at the end of at the end of the turn, and be able to leave up your interaction, and then when it goes around the table and they don't do anything you have to worry about, you can just sink a bunch more mana into Crawling Barrens and threaten to kill somebody. To say nothing of the prospect of hitting it with a Mythos of Aluna, making more copies of it, and continuing to go bananas. And this thing is $2.50. That's the most expensive card we're going to talk about in Budget Spotlight today. I have to preface that before we move on. You can do a lot worse than $2.50 for a Mana Doubler. I heard... I heard mana doublers are pretty good. And last but not least, we have a card that is taking standard and historic by storm, but still has a lot of room to be just absolutely obnoxious when it comes to commander. And that card is Emergent Ultimatum. Emergent Ultimatum is black, black, green, 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 blue, blue. Sorcery. Search your library for up to three card or three non-land cards with different names and exile them. Your opponent chooses one of them to go back into your library, cast the other two without paying their mana costs, and then exile Emergent Ultimatum. So getting two spells for seven mana while not getting two spells for seven mana is not like groundbreaking stuff, right? We've had cards like Deluvian Primordial in the format. We've had cards like um, Torrential Gear Hulk in the format. We've had cards like, oh, what's the one? What's the one's coming to mind? The Sphinx of the the Scholar from Historic. You know, we've had cards in the format that allow us to cast multiple spells for seven mana. You know, we've had Finale of Promise in the format that can do it for less mana. We've had Fires of Invention in the format, and that's the closest parallel I can draw to just how busted in half this card is. Because you don't just get two spells for seven mana, you get two specific spells out of your deck for seven mana. And being able to set the opponent up for it is just absolutely filthy. Put them on the back foot, make them worried about pressure, and then you present like Vorinclex, Alrin's Epiphany, and Kiora Best the Sea God. No matter what they choose, they're gonna die. Because <laughs> if they choose the Vorinclex and the Kiora, you, well, you get to tap all their stuff down. Much faster. If they choose Alrin's Epiphany, Kyoribus the Sea God, well, they die anyway, because you get both of them, you get an extra turn, you get the 2-1-1 birds, you get an 8-8. And then you get to untap, and you make it to where all their stuff attacks, and you get another attack phase in. 
And that's just the standard applications. I don't even want to think about the dumb stuff you can do with this thing in historic or pioneer or modern or EDH. It's just stupid. Oh, and by the way, it's the grand high price of $1. What? A dollar, a singular dollar. We're talking pauper prices for a card that allows you to just absolutely dominate what's left of a game. Come on. So that'll wrap it up for Budget Spotlight. And moving on to our second segment, Brew of the Week is where I try to spotlight either a concept that I'm working on or something that someone has submitted for the show that I want to talk about or that they wanted me to talk about, depending on the situation. And in this case, I'm taking a look at Pauper for the first time in a very long time to talk about a, a deck concept. It is very much still in the concept stages. I have not gotten formal lists ironed out yet. But I'm calling the deck Saltai Xerox. The concept of the deck is we want to maximize our brainstorm and ponder mileage while finding inventive ways to mitigate mana flood. Which is what all these Xeroxy cantrip decks want to do, right? But three colors sounds really questionable when you want to do that. Enter the card that makes the deck tick, and that card is Land Grant. And I know what you're thinking, that card that you put in one land spy so you don't have to play lands. It's that card you play in Charbelcher in Legacy so you only have to play two lands. Yes. But it's also got some mileage here, thanks in large part to the snow duels from Kaldheim. Because you can play blue and black mana sources in your deck that land grant can go get. It can go get you a forest island, and it can go get you a, for, a forest swamp. But as with any Xerox concept, we want good ways to pay us off for going down this road, and that's where things get interesting. That's where the customization lies, is with any cantrip-heavy deck. What are you doing to get paid off for playing all, these, all this air in your deck? Do you want to play... A lot of good removal or do you want to play tempo generating cards do you want counter spells like mana leak or actual counter spell or circular logic or you know something along those lines or do you want cards like ghastly demise do you want cards like uh I'm drawing a blank. You've got a lot of stuff on the table that you can play, essentially, for your interactive suite. You can play some combination of removal, counter magic. You can even play fog effects. Cards like Moments Piece, cards like Tangle. So that once you start to build a board presence, you can just allow your opponent to attack, stop it from mattering, and then attack back. You know, treat the tempo as trying to get extra combat phases, essentially. How do we want to use our graveyard? Nimble Mongoose, Werebear, the aforementioned Circular Logic, and Ghastly Demise make a case for Threshold. But Gurmag Angler and Hooting Mandrels also want to use the cards in your graveyard to, shall we say, much less Bajuka Boggable standards. Uh, as someone who's tried to play a Threshold deck in Popper in the past and gotten blown out by Bajuka Bogs and uh, Nihil Spell Bombs, I can definitely see the allure to just trying to get the advantage now. I don't disagree with that. So if that's, you know, if that's your bag, you've still got plenty of blues. You've still got, you know black sources for angler that you can fetch with land grant you've got green sources you know if you just play we'll say four duels right you just play two each of the um the the called snow forest duels if you just play two each of those you've got four targets for your four land grants and like you've got access to all of those so that means you've got easy access to green mana 
and easy access to your your black mana for angler it's kind of a kind of a no-brainer every land grant you resolve is one more mana you don't have to pay for hooting mandrels or Gurmag angler I think that's pretty cool do we want the exhume plus cycling creatures package and in fact it can even get bigger because of the pre the presence of actual green mana in the deck a card like greater sandworm that maybe you wouldn't have played in the deck before because there was no way you could feasibly cast it maybe that thing has some legs now or probably not because it's a worm but do you want the exhume plus cycling creatures package in order to cycle a creature on turn one land grant for a land grant for an untapped forest on turn two you know exhume get a body on the table get a hit or do you want delver in the deck because ostensibly you're going to be a better delver deck than the other delver decks at flipping your delver because you just have more instants and sorceries in your deck because you got to cut lands to play land grant which is a sorcery And then when it comes to sideboard packages, we get Hydroblast, yes, I know, and I would love to be able to play uh, Pyroblast as well, and honestly, this deck could probably go Teamer too, if that's something you want to do. Play Scred and all Snow-Covered Basics, as opposed to cards like Ghastly Demise, but I personally am in love with Angler and Ghastly Demise. But nobody ever said you had to do either or you can also just do both one of the other neat things about playing a deck with land grant in it is you also get to make your auger of bolus better so if you want to adopt more of a reactive stance and just try to try to win the long game by grinding your opponent out and being able to hit your land drops in a deck that probably only plays like 14 or 15 lands you can do that because of silly things like Augur of Bolus being able to find land grant, which can then go get you a land and shuffle, shuffle the other two cards you put back, back through if you wanted to find them. It also makes it possible, thanks to land grant, to be able to splash a fourth color. For example, for something like Swirling Sandstorm. If you need a board wipe after sideboard, Swirling, Stan Swirling Sandstorm's got you covered. We'll just kill all the things, including their anglers. The, 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 the one caveat I would say to that, I put in the notes, I said we could even splash a fourth color out of the board if your ambition outweighs your sensibilities. So that's all I got to say about Saltai Xerox. I think the deck has got some legs or... I mean, it, it can definitely trip you up, get it, can trip, but I think it's got, I think it's got some worth it can prove. I mean, part of it is just my overwhelming desire to maximize Alan Comer theories. It was one of my favorite deck builders in the history of Magic, and playing a deck that gets to cheat as far down on lands as possible, but still hit a land drop every turn is what we should all aspire to do, right? <laughs> so I'm really intrigued by it. I'm definitely going to get to work on trying to hammer out a list. So moving on to main topic this week, I have the, the working title, as it were, Brooding. <laughs> so who are the Sultai Brood? They are the clan of the Plain of Tarkir. The Sultai Wedge is primarily black exploring how it interacts with its ally color blue and its enemy color green just like the structure of the other cons that we've gone through so far uh, abzan and jeskai in the lore the sultai are depicted as ambitious and merciless fueled by their admiration for the dragon's aspect of ruthlessness They are villains undone by their own greed in both timelines in the Tarkir storyline. Sultai are the bad guys. 
They're, they're the bad ones. They're the ones you don't, you're not supposed to like. Because they're supposed to be, you know, to, for lack of a better term, the, uh, the mustache twirling villains. They're, they're, they're bad. They, they're bad people who, bad creatures who do bad things. They want what's best for no one but themselves. From a mechanical identity standpoint, their early timeline mechanic, Delve, goes down as one of the most broken mechanics of all time. Because, just like Affinity before it, when you give players the ability to use a resource that is very readily available to make their spells cost less, they're going to do everything in their power to make those spells cost as little as possible and be unreasonably powerful for their cost. That's just... That's just how it's going to work every time. The new timeline mechanic, Exploit, does a better job of depicting the, the ruthless nature of the clan. Exploit being, uh, when this creature enters the battlefield, you can sacrifice another creature. And when you exploit a creature, you get to do a thing. Outside of Tarkir, when supported, Sultai tends to operate as a mid-range graveyard deck or as some sort of completely and utterly degenerate deck. Think, I don't know, Dredge and Extended before they banned Dread Return. It's kind of obnoxious, right? So what's the competitive history? My competitive history with Sultai. The first one I ever saw, and this kind of led me to believe that at the time we called it bug black blue green that bug decks were limited to eternal formats or at least formats that went further back than standard one of the first decks i really got to lay eyes on that was built in these colors was i call it loam tog i can't remember for sure what they called it at the time i can't remember if they called it grow a tog or if they it was something else I want to say Grow a Tog was a version that happened before Extended Rotation when you could play the Miracle Grow stuff alongside Psychotog in the same deck. But this deck was, I said, it's what do you get when you cross a strong control archetype with a powerful grinding engine? Life from the Loam and Cycling Lands joined Psychotog to give the deck a reliable way to churn through cards and power up good old Dr. Teeth. Uh, for those of you who don't know the interaction, Life from the Loam is one in a green and returns three lands from your graveyard to your hand and has dredge three. So whenever you would draw a card, you can instead mill your top three cards and return Life from the Loam from your graveyard to your hand. Well, then you would be able to cast Life from the Loam, buy back some cycling lands, Cycle one of those lands for one mana, mill three, get your your life from the loan back, and have two extra cards in your hand. And in turn, lay flashback cards into your graveyard. And in particular, those work wonderfully alongside Psychotog, who can turn one card in your hand or two cards in your graveyard into plus one, plus one, till end of turn on your three mana, one, two. Good luck killing that thing with lightning bolt. It's not going to happen. It's just not. And then when you factor in stuff like uh, circular logic or what have you, it, it gives you the ability to just annihilate someone out of nowhere. You get the tog down, you get to untap with it, they're probably going to die. Next on the list is another extended deck, this one from 2007, and it was Countertop Goyf. And I could swear that this deck had a had a much cuter name at the time. I really don't remember. I tried to find it and all I could find was they called it Countertop Goyf. It was popularized by Pro winning Pro Tour Valencia in 2007 in the hands of Remy Fortier. And what this deck did is it combined the best threats, Tarmogoyf and Dark Confidant, with the most powerful interactive package to create a robust mid-range control deck capable of grinding against anybody. When you have Counterbalance and Sensei's Divining Top, there's this sort of unspoken advantage that you get to enjoy 
because you don't have to play a bunch of counter spells in your deck. It also makes your playing Sensei's Divining Top makes your Dark Confidant's better because the Dark Confidant reveal always hits a cheap card and you can fit some expensive cards in your deck without annihilating your own life total. To the point that this deck was playing cards like Vincer, Shaper, Solvent, uh, Threads of Disloyalty, just a, a litany of some of the some of the more interesting interactive options available. It was very clearly built to beat zoo style aggro decks and to be able to have game against the other mid-range decks and combo decks. And then I really didn't get to see another good Sultai deck for a long time. It just didn't show up. It was not a color combination that was supported in standard and it was not a color combination that I ever really got a chance to play before I took my long hiatus from 2011 to 2016. And then everything changed. With the birth, the advent of Sultai Marvel. Now, bear in mind, this was at the time period where the energy cards were not just the best things to be doing in Standard, but they felt absolutely, completely and utterly broken compared to the rest of Standard. Like... It was this free resource that you got for, like, no effort while everybody else was, like, jumping through hoops to try to make their cards good. And the Sultai version in particular was an interesting spin on the archetype. It's funny because I said spin on the archetype and we're talking about Aetherworks Marvel, which is like spinning a wheel to see if your opponent dies out of nowhere. But I digress. Uh, this, this deck became... I'm not going to say popular, but at least, you know, existent. After the banning of Felidar Guardian took the fourth color out of the Sahili mid-range energy deck. And as such, players just gravitated to the next broken thing, which was Marvel, which allowed you to cast your 10-mana Ulamog on turn four. Well, it turned out you didn't actually need the red cards to do that. Because Woodweaver's Puzzle Knot didn't care if you played red cards in your deck. It just it didn't care. It was totally fine if you didn't want to do that. But what this deck did is it married the degenerate Aetherworks Marvel engine, a la Attune with Aether Rogue Refiner, Marvel, Woodweaver's Puzzle Knot, Ulamog. To a sort of quasi-reanimator package in the form of you were already interested in playing a Vessel of Nascency to look for your Marvel or hit land drops to be able to cast your Marvel or find Puzzle Knot if you already had Marvel and it would take you from turn 4 to turn 5 but you could still get there. But in addition to that you were also playing Liliana Death's Majesty. So that when your opponent countered Ulamog on turn four or turn five, you could untap on the next turn and slam Liliana down and just revive your Ulamog. Just be like, hey, you know that thing you didn't like? Well, here it is again. Hmm. It also added the creature Demon of Dark Schemes as both another Marvel hit that was powerful because it would sweep the boards of most of the red aggro decks and it's another thing to sink your energy into that would cheat a giant creature into play. Notably, when you did that with, uh, with Demon of Dark Schemes, you would give everybody else minus two, minus two, get energy for each thing that died and then be allowed to turn around and funnel that energy into the demon to buy back another creature from your graveyard. Like, it was really cool, right? But then, of course, they banned Aetherworks Marvel because that card was stupid. Especially in a format that didn't have any ways to answer it. 
rather than ban the payoffs for the card, they just banned all the setup. A strategy that they didn't quite get right the first time around. Because that gave life to the next deck on our list, Saltai Energy. Now, Tamer Energy took the, the headlines, but Saltai Energy won the World Championship that year. It, it married the energy mid-range package of Long Tusk Cub, Attune with Aether, Rogue Refiner. Instead of marrying it to Whirler Virtuoso, Glory Bringer, and Harness Lightning, it married it to Glint Sleeve, Siphoner, and uh, the Scarab God. But on top of that, you also got to play Winding Constrictor, Rishkar, Pima, Renegade, and Verterous Gearhog. So that while you were stockpiling energy, you were also stockpiling power and toughness on the battlefield and stressing your opponent's energy reserves in the mirror match or in the quasi-mirror when they were playing Teamer. You would stress their energy reserves in that matchup because they'd have to spend more energy than they could make early in the game to harness lightning your creatures so they wouldn't get violence to death. And it was an interesting deck because it was it was also a very kind of malleable archetype. Because some builds were like the one that Seth Manfield won worlds with. Yes, they were very proactive Winding Constrictor, Rishkar, Verterous Gearhulk decks that happened to play Siphoner and Scarab God. Other builds were more sort of trying to take advantage of the easier mana uh, because Attune with Aether was such an important card and you actually got to play eight untapped green duels in Blooming Marsh and Botanical Sanctum so it made your turn one Attunes easier to stomach. But it was the type of deck that, I mean, objectively speaking, was just very good, right? To the point that even players realized they didn't have to play the, the Winding Constrictor engine, and in cutting that, they actually just splashed the fourth color thanks to Aetherhub and additional, like, fast lands or basic lands to go get with a tune with Aether. And then they played, um, oh, what is the card's name? I'm drawing a blank. They played uh, Whirler Virtuoso and Harness Lightning inside their er, Sultai energy decks. As they lovingly referred to it at the, at the time, it was Sultai Red. Where you got to marry your Terminate to your Siphoner so that you had even more and more effective one-for-one -one trade cards that would allow you to body your opponent through the middle of the game. And it was really, really cool. You could count me in the... Uh, you could count me much more favorable among the teamer, the streamlined teamer energy deck. But I, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't behoove you, I wouldn't beseech you to try to change your ways if that's not what you wanted to do. Next up, we have the deck that sort of, it didn't dominate standard, but it's always been a player. <coughs> Up until its key cards rotated last year, or in October, as it were. And that deck is Sultai Midrange from Ravnica Allegiance Standard through October, basically. <laughs> And the initial builds featured Explore Creatures, Wild Growth Walker, and Hydroid Crisis, Thought Erasure, and the like. Fair, balanced, powerful magic. It's the deck that Nick played at Grand Prix Memphis 2018. Uh, it was a deck that we really enjoyed. But I don't, you know, I'm not going to disparage anybody that didn't want to play it. It was, a, it was a good deck. You got to just play a lot of really good magic cards. And then the Explore Creatures plus Wild Growth Walker did a really good job of making your aggro opponent's lives miserable long enough for you to come out and steal a game. War of the Spark kind of took that formula and turned it on its head. Because War of the Spark gave us Nyssa who shakes the world. 
And Nyssa pushed Krasis firmly into unfair territory. <laughs> because now, instead of your Krasis needing a lot of lands in play to serve as a big mana sink and draw you a bunch of cards and gain you a bunch of life, now you could do it the turn after you untapped with Nyssa. Which put a lot of pressure on an opponent to remove the Nyssa. Kind of a big deal. In addition, they're... they're cropped up a couple of different lists that wanted to play sort of one-card combos as curve toppers inside the archetype. Those two cards that kind of differentiated the deck, you either played the Bolas' Citadel version, wherein you would barf a bunch of Explore Creatures and Wild Growth Walkers out of your deck in order to set up a Drain You for 10 after I attack sequence, or you would play Command the Dreadhorde to bring back a couple of Planeswalkers and a couple of big creatures in a, in conjunction with like double Wild Growth Walker, Jade Light Ranger and just keep your, you know, you, you wanted the Command the Dreadhorde to put you at, you know, two, three, four life and then your triggers from Wild Growth Walker, Wild Growth Walker and Explore Creatures to gain you right back up into double digits and just put lots and lots of power and toughness and overall generic card power level on the table. And then the unthinkable happened, which was even after the rotation of the Explore Creatures, this deck was still good. You, you cut the Explore Creatures and you just played... Uro and Growth Spiral and Nissa and Crisis and Removal Spells and Thought Erasure, and you still got to do all the same things. You just weren't interested in playing creatures early in the game, but you still just got to play a lot of really, really good magic cards. So this deck continued its run of playability, of viability, all the way up until Uro got banned. That's how good this deck was. Nissa rotates, and you can still play Sultai mid-range? Come on. But in the middle of all of that, we had the deck that had the highest representation of any deck, or the, the archetype that had the, the best collection of power level and just really, really good magic cards I think I've ever seen in a format. And that deck was the Sultai food deck from... Mythic Championship Eldraine, I'm calling it MC Eldraine, because I can't remember where it was or what the official name was. It was it was dubbed by the pro players Pro Tour Oko. <laughs> it was the absolute pinnacle of Oko Madness because it contains one of the highest concentrations of banned cards and only lasted one event before Oko was banned. <laughs> but it got to play all the things the Simic Food deck did. Oko... Crisis Nissa, uh, Wicked Wolf, Trailer Crumbs. But then it also pitched in Cauldron Familiar, Witches Oven, Midnight Reaper. So, on top of already having one of the best mid range frameworks to work with, you just got to add this other thing that would annihilate your average aggro opponent. So, I mean, top to bottom, that's pretty good. That's pretty good, right? You know, cards that were banned in this deck, Oko, Thief of Crowns, Veil of Summer, uh, Cauldron Familiar. There's just a lot about this deck that was not right. Now, moving on from one degenerate thing to the most recent degenerate thing that Sultai has been able to do, we have the the sort of demon of current standard, and that is Sultai Yorian, wherein you are playing a flicker mid-range value deck that in secret is actually just trying to ramp into all into uh, Emergent Ultimatum, Allrin's Epiphany, and some way of murdering you. <laughs> um, 
So it's it's a, a reactively postured mid-range deck, which is a little bit of an unusual and unorthodox position for a Sultai deck to be in, but it just outvalues everybody, right? If you're trying to play a game of fair and balanced magic with them, you are going to have a very bad time. And I mean a very bad time. Because Binding of the Old Gods, Omen of the Sea, Elspeth's Nightmare, uh, I know there's more. I know there's more. Midnight Clock against the Rogue's deck, like, it's got access to everything it needs to be able to fight through whatever your opponent's doing, and it can just win by doing that. But if you give them the opening, or if they're already ahead on the board and it doesn't matter if it gets countered, down comes Emergent Ultimatum and you better do something about it. Because it might just flip them Epiphany, Vorinclex, Balaged Recovery, right? Or Epiphany, Vorinclex, Elder Gargaroth. Like, what do you give them? <laughs> what do you give them in that situation? There's not a good thing to do. Like, oh, uh, you can have the Gargaroth back and then I'll take 16 plus whatever you've got on the table before I get to untap again. Um, you can have the, the Gargaroth and the Epiphany. And then they make two 1-1s one and then they make the Gargaroth and then they get to attack for eight make another 3-3 three, three or draw a card, and you are super far behind on the board. Like, there's not a good place to be if you get into a good, a good old-fashioned slugfest with this deck. They are going to drag you down to their level and beat you with experience. They are going to make sure you don't do anything particularly scary to them until they're ready to punish you for it. And nothing screams Saltai more than trying to punish you for doing what you do, right? We just talked about what villains they are in the lore. It's very fitting. <laughs> so with that out of the way, that's all I've got for this week, everybody. I hope you enjoyed it. Again, the, the basis for Saltai is it's a grinder, but every once in a while they give them something that they just have no business getting. And even though it's a grindy deck and it feels like you can you can play because the games go long, you're not in that game. You were never in that game. It's the, the scene from Fast and the Furious. You never had me. You never even had my life total. <laughs> so, I mean, Saltai is what you absolutely do not want to have to play against unprepared because it's either going to be some sort of a degenerate deck that just wrecks your face or it's going to be this really long ugly grinding game where by the end of it you feel like you need a shower because so much weird disgusting stuff just happens And with that, I, I, I gotta let you know. But you can find me on Twitter at HomewardPathMTG. You can find me on Facebook. My name is Adam Spain. You can join the conversation in our Facebook group, the Homeward Pathfinders. And if you, like me, have a particularly sort of twisted but clean sense of humor, you can send me your favorite magic related puns on Twitter with the hashtag MTGDadJokes. And we got. I think three this week. I'm going to have to look for the other two. Uh, the first is from Joey Schultz said, adding ink shield to my black white. Oh, no, I did that one last week. Never mind. Did I do that one last week? I bet I did. I'm going to have to look for the rest of them. <laughs> Where did it go? Where did it go? There we are. From Brad. White black now has inklings, but what about the rest? What about some of the rest? White blue gets blinklings. I mean, I get it. I dig it. Blinking Spirit was a card that I played once. I'm not going to, I'm not happy about that. I'm not proud to admit that, but it is definitely a card I played once. 
Uh, black green gets stinklings. Blue green gets thinklings. Blue red gets slinglings. <laughs> you were so close. It's flinglings, Brad. Flinglings. <laughs> and black red gets mainlings. And yes, they are. As somebody who has frequently dabbled in the red-black side of the color wheel, we're all mainlings. <laughs> we have another one. From uh, courtesy, I, I, I jumped in to uh, make the joke for Brad. He said, got in some impromptu games. Got in some impromptu spell table games. A pauper, it feels so good to have actual paper cards in my hand. And Brute Squad is a beast. And I responded with, you could perhaps say it was brutal. <laughs> to which Brad responded, et tu, Brute. <laughs> Very proud of this community, let me tell you. And then most recently... Uh, Titan Smash MTG said, I have one extra strict save and pre-release code. Whoever can post the best magic-related pun in the comments gets it. And Brad tagged me. So I had to do it. I said, I've been enjoying the Vaderock plus Omen Paths combo, but the deck feels a little inconsistent sometimes. I guess you could say it's an unstable mutation. Yeah! No. <laughs> Please don't sue me, the who. You won't get any money. I don't have any. <laughs> but that's all i've got for this week everybody i hope you enjoyed the show uh you got questions comments concerns leave them down below or contact me on any of the social media networks and remember everybody's going through stuff right now so if you have to pick what kind of person you're going to be every morning be kind and with that we'll catch you next week